It's been rightly said that ritual without reality is meaningless. Far too much of humanity relies on worthless ritual to gain access to God. This is true today, and it was certainly true in the time of the Apostle Paul. Ritual can be performed and accepted without any personal commitment on the part of the one engaging in the act. It can be performed and accepted that way. Baptism can be performed on infants, and the infant neither knows what is going on or would even remember if someone didn't tell them later that they were baptized as an infant. God's not impressed with that. A person could go through the motions of taking the bread and the cup of communion with no reality whatsoever of remembering the Lord Jesus Christ in that process, and God is not impressed with that. In the Old Testament, sacrifices could be brought into the temple in keeping with the Mosaic Law, but with no internal reality of a broken spirit and a contrite heart, and God is not impressed with that. A man could have his foreskin circumcised on the eighth day, but never have his soul circumcised. And I assure you, God is not impressed with that. God is interested in what goes on on the inside before he's impressed with what a person does on the outside. God accepts internals before he accepts externals. Now, don't misapply this into a system that rejects externals. Let me tell you how this can work. From the Reformation times on, from the time of Martin Luther and John Calvin, Earl Zwingli, and the rest of the Reformers, the battle cry has been sola fide, faith alone. And so, in some circles, we've taken faith alone to be such a strong tenet of the faith that we've neglected the idea of works. We've taken the internals to be the only thing and then said that there was, there was no place for work in the Christian life, almost as if work was a four-letter word. Well, as the Apostle Paul has made clear in our study of Romans so far, work is not a component of justification. It's faith alone. But after we're justified, the externals are expected. Work is expected. Ephesians 2.8.9, which is one of the, the greatest proof texts in the Bible for salvation by grace through faith, is not the end of that paragraph. The Apostle Paul says, it's not of works, lest any man should boast, at least not our justification. And then the very next sentence, the, actually the last sentence of the paragraph, where Paul is completing the thought, says, but you have been prepared. The good works have been prepared beforehand in Christ Jesus for the believer. So don't misapply the idea that God accepts internals before externals as saying, I'm going to stop with internals. And then there'll be no externals in my life, because that's not the plan of God at all. Baptism and communion today, and then in their day, the Old Testament system of sacrifices and circumcision were legitimate expressions, legitimate external expressions of internal realities. Now, there were other legitimate external expressions as well. I just use these as examples. But remember that these external expressions of an inward reality, those things were ordained by God, commanded by God, if you prefer that terminology. So while the Apostle Paul will stress internals before externals, 
particularly in the subject of circumcision, which we study tonight. He was not saying that circumcision in the Old Testament wasn't legitimate. Of course it was. But he's saying that circumcision was an external ritual that reflected an internal reality in Abraham's soul. And that, that internal reality had to precede the external ritual. And I've got to tell you, that's the way God planned it. He wants the internals to precede the externals. You know, there's a phrase that, that's used in business sometimes and other positive thinking circles, to become, act as if. Have you ever heard that? To become, act as if. If you want to be rich, then you act as if you are wealthy. Well, that's a good way to go bankrupt sometimes for many people, but other times, I mean, it works. There, there are some, there's some truth to it. I'm not knocking the truth at all. There, there are some things that where that's a, a decent philosophy, but in God's plan, he wants you to be and then do. Don't do to be. Be and then do. That's the sequence that he, that he has ordained. Ritual without reality is like throwing a barbecue without the meat. I don't see what the point is in a barbecue without the meat. One time Cindy and I were on one of the islands in the Caribbean and somebody had given us a gift for my graduation from seminary. And on the, the last day that we were there, we stopped by a Burger King because I was ready to have some regular American food. I never eat, by the way, I never eat at McDonald's ever, except when I'm overseas. I mean, in Ukraine, I eat at that McDonald's right down the street from where Sergey lives. But would never eat there here. Never forget, though, we went into this Burger King and Cindy saw on the menu a veggie burger. Now, to Cindy, that means kind of like a Whole Foods veggie burger that's made of soy or something and has lettuce and tomatoes on it, and it's something that I think is grotesque. <laughs> it's an abomination, but that's, she likes that. So I ordered my double meat, double cheese burger, cardiovascular killer, <laughs> with my french fries and probably at that time a milkshake. I'm not exactly sure what it was. And she orders her veggie burger. We sit down, and she opens up her sandwich after she gets it, and she said, well, there must be some mistake. They left the burger part off the veggie burger. And so she went back up and, and asked him, said, well, y'all didn't put the, the veggie part on, the veggie burger part on. And they said, no, we, we gave it to you, right? It was uh, two buns, lettuce, and a tomato. And that was the veggie burger. <laughs> and it's like, I don't see the point of that. <laughs> and I think that's the way God looks at ritual without reality. There just isn't a point. Like a veggie burger without even the vegetable part, you know, the vegetable burger part. It's kind of silly. Well, look, read along with me. We're in Romans chapter 4. Read along with me as far as we've gone. Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And then he's quoting Genesis 15:6. And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, end quote. Now, to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor or as grace, but as to what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing upon the man to whom God reckons righteousness apart from works. In verse 7, quoting Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. 
In the book of Romans so far, Paul gives an extended introduction in the first 15 verses. And the reason he gives such an extended introduction here is because he'd never been to that church before. The church was probably founded by some of his converts, but most of the people he didn't know personally. So he takes some time and introduces himself. In verses 16 and 17, he introduces his thesis statement, the theme of the book, that salvation is by grace through faith, apart from works. He uses a quotation from the Old Testament from Habakkuk 2.4 to make his point, and then he's going to expand on that for the rest of the book. Then in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 3.20, Paul enlightens us with the principle that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The immoral person has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. We, we can buy that. Next step up, though, the moral person has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and is in need of justification. A little harder to accept, but Paul made the case that they're just as sinful. And finally, the Jew, although they had incredible advantages, hadn't taken advantage of the advantages that they had, and they too had fallen short of the glory of God. They need a Savior. Later on, Paul's going to tell us, we're actually, we're even born with a need for a Savior. That'll come up in chapter 5. But in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, Paul gets right to the point and says it as clearly as someone could say it, that there is no boasting in this life. For in verse 28, he says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. That's it in a nutshell. Paul couldn't get any more clear than he is right there. Then in chapter 4, Paul introduces a figure that was revered in Jewish circles, to be sure, and even in most Gentile circles of Paul's day. That's the figure of Father Abraham. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul brings forth the argument that even Abraham was justified by faith and not by works. If anyone ever had a right to say they were justified by works, it would have been Abraham. He was a revered figure. We even looked at a couple texts, one from the Mishnah, one from the prayer of Manasseh, that indicated that the current thought at the time that Paul wrote Romans was that Abraham was sinless. And in another place, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all sinless and didn't need justification. And Paul debunks that myth right off the bat, and I have to, to applaud his courage for doing it, because he went right straight across the cultural grain of his day and says, now wait a minute, let's go back and see what the Scripture says about that. He could, he could have said it this way. Let's go back and see what the Hebrew scriptures say about this. Or perhaps another way, let's go back and see what Moses said about this. Because Abraham didn't write anything down, but in terms of the scriptures, Moses would have been the next most respected Jewish person in all of history. We can argue a little bit about that, but I think that that was pretty fair in Paul's day. So if Moses backed up Paul's point, don't you think that he would have a fairly strong argument. And that's exactly what happens. He quotes Genesis 15:6. We spent almost um, or half of a class on that particular verse because it's so important for the rest of this chapter. That Paul says that Abraham trusted or believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. So it wasn't by means of his works. It was by means of faith. <clears throat> then in verses, in the rest of Romans chapter 4, Paul makes essentially two arguments. He's going to talk about in the first 16 verses what justification is not. It's not by works, it's not by, it's not by uh, circumcision, and it's not by keeping the Mosaic law. Okay? It's not by works, we, we've already studied that. Tonight we'll see it's not by um, circumcision, and then in the weeks to come we'll see that it's not by keeping the Mosaic law. And then in verses 17 and following he'll say what it is. So we have, we'll have a, a negative and then a positive. Last week we talked a little bit about 
the concept of justification itself because Paul has added one more thing to it. Previously, he's told us that justification is the addition of righteousness to the believer, which makes the believer acceptable before God. That's the positive side. But lest we forget, there is another side to that coin. And David says in Psalm 32 that blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven. So justification is more than the old phrase that was popularized in the early 1900s, just as though I had never sinned. You've probably heard that phrase before. Maybe heard it in church or Sunday school. And that was very popular for a time. But according to Paul, it's more than just as though I had never sinned. That's really not a, a, I don't believe that's the best way to put that anyway. It's more than the subtraction of sins. It's more than just forgiveness, although it includes forgiveness. Make no mistake about that. Paul includes it in this discussion of of what justification is. But there's another side to that coin, which is the addition of righteousness. So in your own understanding of what justification before God is, it includes both the subtraction of our sins and the penalty of those sins, and then the addition of God's righteousness to us. Two sides to the same coin. Now tonight, we take a look at what Paul, uh, one of the areas that Paul says that the justification is not by. It's not by works, it's not by circumcision, and it's not by keeping the law. So Paul is, is in Romans chapter 4, he's making his case ever tighter and tighter and tighter. He's, He's squeezing them, if you will, squeezing them into his position. At this point, I can imagine a Jewish reader in Paul's audience, and I think he can imagine it too, almost throwing his his hands up in the air and saying, wait a minute, Abraham was circumcised. You've forgotten that, Paul. You've, You've forgotten, you've missed the whole importance of the ritual of circumcision. And I can see it's almost a desperation effort, almost like a Hail Mary pass in football. You know, you've, you've lost the game, but there's just one last play where you go and throw, and, and maybe one time in a million you win the game by doing that. And I can see this as a Hail Mary pass on the part of the Jew. What about, what about the fact that Abraham was circumcised, Paul? Remember Genesis 17? It was the sign of the covenant. It's the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. So what about that, Paul? Hmm? What about circumcision? You forgot that. And Paul answers, like only Paul can, I think, very calmly, and I paraphrase, that Genesis 15 comes before Genesis 17. In other words, Abraham's obedience and circumcision, which happened in Genesis 17, was not the basis of his justification because that happened no later than Genesis 15. We studied that actually that happened when he left Ur of the Chaldees, and there are reasons for understanding that as a parenthetical statement. Abraham's circumcision was not the basis of his justification. Remember, Paul's going to go over three things. His works were not the basis of his justification. His circumcision was not the basis of his justification. And... Sure as shooting, his keeping the Mosaic Law wasn't the basis of his justification. Anybody have an idea why? The law wasn't in, it wasn't extent at that time. So the, it, that couldn't have been. So circumcision wasn't the basis of his justification any more than a person's water baptism is the basis for their justification. 
Abraham was declared righteous before he was circumcised on the basis of faith. It is true that the genuineness of his faith was seen in the fact that he followed the call of God and left Ur when and where God directed him. His subsequent circumcision was also an outward seal upon his inward justifying faith. It was an outward expression. You know, sometimes when we talk about baptism, we say that baptism, water baptism for the believer, is an outward expression of an inward conviction of faith in Jesus Christ. What comes first, the outward expression or the inward conviction? Say the inward conviction. Thank you. The inward conviction comes first, and then the outward expression comes second. If there's an expression with no inward conviction, we would say that is meaningless, and God is not impressed. Had Abraham been circumcised before he was justified, before he exercised faith, God would not be impressed. I'll tell you why in just a moment. Inward realities ordinarily, customarily, and normally should have external reflections of that inward reality. Big debate about them going on today. If there are no external manifestations of the internal reality, can we say that that person never had that internal reality? I don't think we could go that far. Primarily because I don't know any of us that are wise enough, omniscient enough, to watch all the external realities that a person might have. So I think it's a little dangerous to start making pronouncements that perhaps somebody hasn't ever trusted Christ if they don't have an external reality of works. But the norm is, the way God designed it, was for faith to obey. That's the norm. That's what we should see. But it's the faith that brings justification, not the acts of obedience that brings justification. Okay? Again, faith brings justification, not the acts of obedience that flow from our faith. They don't bring justification. Outward expressions, though commanded and necessary, in, in a sense, as evidence of saving faith, are nonetheless still secondary. Now look at the way Paul frames his arguments in, in verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing then upon the circumcised or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say, faith was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, that could be translated the sign which is circumcision, the sign which is circumcision, a seal, of the, a seal of righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them, and the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision, but also who follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Paul's saying, hey, listen, the Gentiles are included in this. I don't know if you realize how big of a statement that was in Paul's culture, but this is huge. He talks about it a lot in the book of Ephesians as well, which we'll have to tackle perhaps after we do the book of Romans, whenever that might be finished. The inclusion of the Gentiles into the body of Christ was a big truth. I mean, it was a big thing back in those days. There was a certain amount of pride. I hate to say it, but there was a certain amount of pride in the Jewish community. They didn't really want the Gentiles included. But Paul says here, I hope you see the significance of what he said. 
that Abraham is the father of those who are circumcised and those who are uncircumcised, provided they've had faith. He's the father of all. He's the pattern for all who believe, whether they've been circumcised or not. Paul blows the ritual without reality crowd right out of the water. He blows them right out of the water by saying that it's the faith that counts. The faith is what justifies you, not the external manifestation of that faith. It's the faith that justifies, not the water baptism that that is a public pronouncement of that faith. The reason I keep bringing up water baptism, there are people who believe that that water baptism is analogous to the circumcision ritual of the Old Testament. I'm not one of those people, but because I think that the, the circumcision ritual was very specific as a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And water baptism is not a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. If anything, it's, it's more of a sign of the new covenant, but that's a whole different ballgame. But Paul is saying now, he, he starts the sentence by, is this blessing then upon the circumcised in verse 9? The blessing specifically that Paul's talking about goes back to verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. The blessing of forgiveness. He's, he, he mentions one side of the two-sided coin of justification to let us know that actually he's referring to the entire thing. Paul does that a lot. It's the blessing upon the circumcised or the uncircumcised. And then he quotes Genesis 15, 6 again. It's not the last time he's going to do it in this chapter, so it's very important. He does it again in verse 22. It's very important that we understood what Genesis 15, 6 meant. He quotes it again. Then in verse 10, how then was he reckoned? That's interesting. Paul asks a how question, and then he answers it with a when response. Do you see that? He says, how was it reckoned? And then he says, while. It's a little, it's a little foreign to our thinking to do that. And there's different ways that the Greeks had to point out time. The particular way that Paul is using here refers to a, a specific instant in time not like an era or a, uh, an event, but a specific instant in time. That's how he can answer a how question with a when answer. To answer the when is going to tell you the how. It's going to tell you it can't be the how of circumcision because it was the when of way before he was circumcised. In fact, depending on the chronology used, most Gentile uh, Old Testament scholars would say uh, that he was justified 25 years before he was circumcised, I read recently that some Old Testament scholars believe it was 29 years. Not that that's going to affect your spiritual life one way or another, but it's just an interesting difference in the way that they were reckoning time. But he was not justified while he was circumcised. He was justified at least 25 years before that. So the how question is really answered by dealing with the when. And Paul's point is the events of Genesis 15 come before the events of Genesis 17. There is no disputing that. I mean, there's not an argument amongst Old Testament scholars that maybe Moses was taking things out of order or or anything like that. There's no disputing that. Can you see how it was important for someone in Paul's day to understand the Hebrew Scriptures, to have a general understanding of those? Can you see how it's important in our day for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to have a general understanding of the Hebrew Scriptures? I think it's enormously important. Because I believe that you can't have a full grasp of what's going on in the New Testament until you have a grasp of what's going on in the Old Testament. And then to take that one step further, I don't really think we can grasp what's going on in the Old Testament without grasping what's going on in the first five books of the Old Testament. 
and Paul is banking on people having that as a pre-understanding. And, and most of the people that he was talking to would have understood it. Again, he's, he's tightening his argument tighter and ever so tighter, while I imagine a Jewish objector becoming more and more frustrated with this. Now he's taken away circumcision. You know, pull my hair out. But Paul's argument is tight. Then in verse 11, Paul says, And he received the sign of circumcision, or the sign which is circumcision, a seal, that word sign can also be trans- it could be understood, the seal of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised. Again, reading through this, when, when I study the book of Romans, it's amazing to me that people can't get this. Paul is, 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 is crystal clear. He makes his case over and over again. As a matter of fact, he makes it so clearly that it almost becomes redundant. It's not, because every time he does it, he's tightening, he's tightening it up in just a little different area so that no one can squeeze out of the idea that salvation by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. Although a great percentage of people who would call themselves Christians throughout the world don't buy that. And I would say, study Romans, study it objectively, just read what it says, and you're going to have a very difficult time justifying a faith plus theology. So this is the faith which he had while uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be reckoned to them. So in the first part of the verse, Paul amplifies his answer that he gave at the end of verse 10 by showing the relationship between Abraham's justification by faith and his circumcision. The justification came before. What was the significance then of Abraham's circumcision? I mean, was it for nothing? No. It was a sign or an outward expression of an internal reality. Just like baptism. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism, water baptism, I mean. Water baptism is a single event. It's a single act of obedience out of literally millions of acts of obedience that a believer should perform. But does it mean that it's insignificant or that we should relegate it to insignificance? No, just like Paul's not relegating circumcision to insignificance either. It's an outward expression of an internal reality. Circumcision, most of you understand, is the surgical removal of the foreskin of the male reproductive organ. The rite of circumcision was originated long before Abraham. I don't know if you're aware of that. Abraham was not the first person ever to have been circumcised. Cave paintings give evidence that it was practiced in prehistoric times. Egyptian temple drawings show that the operation was common hundreds, perhaps, perhaps even several hundreds of years, before God called upon Abraham to do it. People's Practicing circumcision, we understand from history, lived on, on almost every continent. There's evidence that it was observed among Central and South American Indians, among Polynesians, the people of New Guinea, many Australian and African tribes, the Egyptians, and pre-Islamic Arabs. The rite is not mentioned in the Quran, but because Muhammad himself was circumcised, the tradition dictates that male Muslims follow the ancient custom. Arab ancestry is traced, remember, through Ishmael. And Ishmael, Genesis chapter 17 also, was circumcised at the same time that Abraham was. And Ishmael was circumcised when he was 13 years old. So most Muslims, if if they're religious Muslims, they'll be circumcised at 13 years old. Jews were circumcised on the eighth day. 
Muslim men, boys, boys, men, are, are circumcised at a later age. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 25, indicates that the Ammonites, the Edomites, the Midianites, the Moabites, and the Phoenicians all also practiced circumcision. The Philistines didn't. And that's why David can taunt Goliath and say, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that taunts the armies of the living God? But many of the other of Israel's neighbors were circumcised. Now, the Hebrews were the only ancient practitioners of circumcision that chose to observe the rite in infancy, thus freeing it from the association with fertility rituals of the pagans. Those other groups that I mentioned to you, they used circumcision for a different reason. It wasn't for hygiene. Today, today most, most, I would say, would be circumcised medically for that reason. But there it was a, it was a ritual of fertility. And so the Jews were commanded not to do it after Abraham and his group, and with a, with a couple of exceptions. Moses, I think Moses, about to, Joshua, about to bring the people into the land, there a lot of them had not participated, so before they could come into the land, they had to, as adults, go through that painful procedure because they didn't do it when they were supposed to. But on the whole, circumcision is practiced on the eighth day. Circumcision is an expression, with Abraham's point, it was an expression that the promises, Abraham was expressing faith that the promises of God would really be fulfilled. Abraham had been promised a son. Abraham didn't have that son. And in Genesis 15, he's promised again he would have it. In late Genesis 15, there's an incredible covenant that is ratified. And in Genesis 17, this is a, a uh, sign of that. Abraham's faith had lapsed in Genesis 16, by the way. So this is going to be a permanent reminder of God's covenant promises. And it was placed on his body and then on the body of his male descendants. It was never, never the means for justification. It was an outward expression of justification. Now, you may say, well, what about those people that were in Abraham's household that he uh, identified with Abraham at covenant by having them be circumcised? I'm, I must make the assumption that the ones that were circumcised were also had been justified. If they weren't, then they were only identified with part of the Abrahamic covenant. There's some discussion about that. Did Abraham force that upon, for example, Ishmael? And was Ishmael a, a believer? I don't know that you can make that case, but at least he's being identified with the blessing, the overflow blessing part of the Abrahamic covenant, not the seed and not the land part. Circumcision was to be performed again on the eighth day, customarily by the boy's father. And at that same time is when a name would be given to the baby. Flint knives were used in the early days. The medical research today has determined that prothrombin, a substance in the blood that aids in clotting, is present in greater quantity on the eighth day than at any other time in a person's life. You figure God knew what he was doing. I do. From the beginning, participation in the covenant promises was open to persons outside of Abraham's household. In Exodus chapter 12, for example, verses 43 through 49, this gives non-Israelites the opportunity to participate in Passover if they're willing to fulfill the same stipulation placed upon Jewish males. That was circumcision. You can be part of the covenant community. This is your 
outward expression that you have, that you're taking in. The provision for admission to God's people, by the way, it's not, it wasn't their ticket into justification. I'm talking about participation in the covenant community. Some churches today have something that's parallel to that. I'm not saying that I agree with this. Some churches say that you can't be a member of our church unless you have gone through the outward ritual of baptism. Well, I don't, we don't have that as part of our church constitution because I don't believe in making a qualification for membership in the local church that God doesn't place for qualification for membership in the universal church. That being said, the churches that do require it, that's where they get it from. If you wanted to be a member of the covenant community in the Old Testament, you had to be circumcised. So they take that and use it in a New Testament context. So ordinarily you'll see people who aren't dispensational that'll do that, but I, I can see it's late and that's, um, we better move on to <laughs> We better move on to a different. <laughs> I'm much more excited about that than y'all are again. There were times when people took the, the covenant of circumcision lightly. I already mentioned the Israelites that were about to go into the land. Remember Moses himself had not identified his sons with the covenant community by, uh, by uh, circumcising them. Now, of course, if, if circumcision is on the eighth day, then it's an expression of the parent in identifying with a child, with a covenant community. We don't, we, don't, we don't need to mix our illustrations here. Remember, Paul is talking about an adult who was circumcised as an outward expression of an internal reality. Let's go to verse 12. Verse 12 says, in conclusion, and the father, he was the, Abraham speaking the father, he is the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcisions, but also follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while uncircumcised. Again, sounds a little redundant, but Paul is tightening and making the case. He states without question that Jews and Gentiles are justified in the same way. In that sense, Abraham is the father of all who follow him in faith. If you don't like the word father, you can also ins you can insert the word illustration. He's the illustration of all who father follow him in faith. So in, in summary... Abraham was not justified by works or by extension any form of ritual, including circumcision. In the same way, we're not saved merely by externals, but by following the pattern of Father Abraham in faith. Heavenly Father, we are so appreciative of this tight argument that Paul makes, so that we have no doubt as to the means of our justification. Father, may we never be prideful or arrogant or boastful about it, for we know that we had no cause to boast before you. Perhaps Abraham had a cause to boast before men, but he had no cause to boast before you, and we know neither do we. May we humbly uh, understand your grace and appreciate your grace. And Father, as a result of understanding and appreciating, may we live as though we understand it and appreciate it not only in our own lives, but may we be testimonies to your grace to those around us so that we might be privileged to be used of your Holy Spirit with many witnessing opportunities. Now, Father, I pray that you would dismiss us with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.